together. Father, I pray that you would cause us to want to sing your praises. Lord, cause us to want to ascribe glory to you. And Lord, help us to do this in such a way that everybody around us will want to join us in praising you. And Lord, we do this to the end that one day we might enjoy all creation set loose to embody and to enjoy the glorious freedom of the children of God. Lord, we pray that you would conform us to the image of Christ, make us those who know your glory and who live like it, we ask in his name. Amen. Recently, I read an article about a guy who grew up in Dallas, Texas, and he grew up in uh, American privilege. His father was a physician. They were wealthy. They lived in a suburb of, of Dallas, and uh, this guy just sort of floundered his whole life until he got linked in with some uh, Muslims, and um, he was in, I think, Bryan College Station near Texas A&M, and, and he began to attend a, a mosque, and he, and he got rad radicalized, and then he began to travel into places that you can't travel necessarily legally, and then he committed, and he is now rising through the ranks of ISIS. In fact, the, the um, reporter thought that maybe this guy from Dallas, Texas, um, might be in the top three to five people leading uh, the Islamic State of uh, Iraq and, or, you know, it, yeah, that place, ISIS, whatever the acronym is. Your mind goes blank up here, sorry. Um, this is a guy who has chosen to embrace a radical and wicked ideology. This is a guy who has chosen to go this way. And I mention this because we need to understand that this is the kind of thing that we have all done. Not, not in rejecting America, not in rejecting freedom and rejecting democracy, but in choosing of our own accord to reject God, to go our own way in terms of embracing sin. And, and what we need to think about as we approach Psalms 95 and 96, what we need to think about is the fact that what God has done can be likened to a rescue operation. And it's not a rescue operation of people who necessarily wanted to be liberated. It's a rescue operation of people who wanted to go be enslaved, who wanted to go fight in a rebellion against the rightful king. And what the rightful king has done, for those of us who are believers, what he's done is he sent emissaries who came to us and who persuaded us and who helped us recognize that we had made horrible choices that had ruined our lives and, and brought us to a place where we saw that there's a way for us to go home. There's a way for us to be brought back. And then, not only did he bring us to a place that we wanted him again, he then freed us from all the things that bound us and, and broke away the shackles and submitted the harsh master that had us enslaved and then provided for our return journey. This is the way that God has liberated us. And what Psalm 95 is, 
is an invitation for people who have been liberated like that. People who were enslaved. I mean, think about Israel, right? Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and uh, it was impossible for them to get out of Egypt. The Egyptians are not going to let their slaves go. The Egyptians like having those slaves. Thank you very much. And Moses shows up and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh just scoffs. And then God does the impossible and brings them out. And then they get trapped between the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh. And God does the impossible and brings them through. And what this psalm is saying is we need to respond to the the salvation, the impossible salvation that God has done in our lives. So I would invite you to look with me at Psalm 95. And this psalm breaks down into three parts. Uh, Verse 1, there's an O come. And then verse 6, there's an O come. And then the third part starts at the end of verse 7 with the word today. And um, what we've got here in the first two parts are invitations to praise the Lord that, that come with arguments as to why we should praise Him. And then the third part applies this, this praise to us. And before we start in, let me, let me summarize the message of Psalm 90, 95 for you. It, it goes like this. God's salvation, the salvation that God has accomplished, His status as the true and living God, and His shepherding care should provoke us to worship and trust Him, not doubt Him and sin against Him. So this psalm is it's commending one response to God, and it's discouraging another response to God. So let's look at the first part here where we have praise to the saving God for His exalted status. Look at Psalm 95, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Now, uh, David is, is inviting his contemporary. Psalm, Psalm 95 is attributed to David in Hebrews chapter 4, the passage that John read a few moments ago. So David is inviting his contemporaries to praise the Lord for a salvation that hasn't yet happened. And and I think we can just put ourselves in that place because even though, yes, the death and resurrection of Jesus have happened, the return of Christ hasn't yet happened. And, And the way that David is looking at this is he's saying there's a future salvation that's going to be achieved that we should praise God for and we can praise Him for that future salvation because He's the rock of our salvation. The future salvation is certain because God's a rock. He's the rock of salvation. His character makes it certain. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And then he continues there in verse 2. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Okay, so... There's an invitation to come, and, and in Old, Old Testament Israel, the, the instructions were that three times a year, all the males were to go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, and so I think we can think of this first invitation to come as like a call for people to start out on the journey to Jerusalem to go up there to worship the Lord. And the way that they are to come into His presence is with thanksgiving. So notice the two things here. You've got 
praise. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise uh, with songs of praise at the end of verse 2 and thanksgiving. There's praise for God for what he's done and gratitude that, that people are, are, are supposed to feel to God. And now here come the reasons for this. So if you're, if you're sitting there thinking, I don't feel much like praising God. I don't feel much like responding to the Lord with worshipful adoration and with warm gratitude. David is now going to try to meet your need. He's, he's going to try to help you want to praise God. So look at verse 3. He says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Now, in this statement, a great king above all gods, David is assuming something about us, something that's true. David is assuming that everybody worships, and we know that to be the case. Everybody worships. Some people worship their stuff. Some people worship their status. Some people worship a substance. But we all worship. And what David is saying is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord, is a great God and a great king above all gods. He's saying that the God of the Bible is superior to everything else that people worship. So I would ask you this morning, what false gods are you inclined to worship And do you think that they are more worthy of your praise than the God of the Bible? In in David's world, these false gods were thought to have authority over certain regions. So there were gods of the mountains, there were gods of the deep places, uh, this kind of thing. There were gods of of the seas. And look at what David says here in verses 4 and 5. He says, In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains also are his. The sea is his. For he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. What David is saying is, God is the creator, and God is therefore worthy of worship. These other gods, they don't have any existence. They shouldn't have any appeal to you for you to worship them. So that's our first section. We should praise God, the saving God, for his exalted status. The second section is in verses 6 and 7 where David invites people to praise the creating God for the way he shepherds them. Verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Okay, so if the first call to come in verse 1 was maybe an invitation to start the journey up to Jerusalem, perhaps this second call to come in verse 6 is an invitation into the very presence of God. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Maybe it's, it's as though the people have now arrived in Jerusalem and David is calling them to worship the Lord. And the way that he invites them to worship is to bow. To bow themselves before, submitting themselves, kneeling before the Lord, our Maker. So once again, this, this focus on God as creator. And then he continues there in verse 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. It's as though God is the creator of this world, which is like a lush pasture cultivated for the enjoyment and sustenance of God's people. 
And the Lord is a good shepherd who has provided for his sheep. And so it's only natural for the sheep to respond to the shepherd with celebratory praises and warm gratitude. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So those are our first two sections, this invitation to praise. This is how we should respond to the Lord. But David knows our hearts. David knows how we live. And so he addresses people directly here at the end of verse 7. Look at what he says, today. And the author of Hebrews picks this up and he says, he says that the Holy Spirit spoke in this passage. And he said through David, today if you hear his voice. And now he's gonna, David's going to talk back about what happened in the past as though it's in the present. But look also how he says, if you hear his voice. David is speaking as though the one speaking through his words is the Holy Spirit. Because for David, the, the, the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and David seems to be aware that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit and aware of the fact that God is speaking through him. And again, the author of Hebrews picks up on this. He says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes this passage, and then in chapter 4, he speaks of how the Lord had spoken through David in, in these words. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. Now, let me, let me back out and, and remind you of what happened on, in, on this occasion. What happened was the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And, and Moses was sent in to get them out. And the Lord visited these plagues. And he, as I said a moment ago, he did the impossible. He liberated Israel from Egypt. Then they get out into the wilderness and they're trapped between the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh. And the Lord opens the seas and makes a temporary highway for the exclusive use of the people of Israel. And then once he's brought them through, they, they realize we don't have anything to eat. And so what the Lord does, the liberator, he makes, he makes bread appear out of nowhere on the ground for them to eat. And then they have no water. Given what they had just seen, water's a real need in the wilderness. They really do need water. But given what they've just seen, you would expect them to say, well, it was impossible for God to get us out of Egypt. And he got us out of Egypt. It was impossible for us to escape the army of Pharaoh, and we got away from them. He destroyed the army of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. There was no food for us to eat, and he made manna appear from heaven on the ground. We don't have water? Well, this is just another opportunity for the Lord to do the impossible. We can expect him to get us water. And instead of responding that way, what they did was they quarreled. And, and the, the word meribah... It has this Hebrew word reeve in it, which means contend. They started to contend with Moses. And, and what they said to Moses is so shocking, it's almost unbelievable. They said to Moses, have you brought us out into the wilderness to kill us with thirst? Oh, yeah, that's exactly why I brought you out here. That's why we got out of Egypt. That's why we came through the Red Sea. That's why the Lord gave us manna from heaven for you to die of thirst. That's exactly why we're here. Not only did they contend with Moses, they tested God. And what David is saying is, there is a response that you need 
to render to the Lord. You need to give him your thanks and, pray- and praise. And there's a way that you need to avoid. And the way, the, the way of responding that you need to avoid, what, what David is discouraging here, he says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What did it mean for Israel to harden their hearts on that occasion? Let's just try to take it step by step. The first thing I think it meant is that they were not contemplating what God had done for them. Look at, look at the end of, end of verse 8. They put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. What's God talking about? The exodus from Egypt. The, path, the crossing of the Red Sea. The provision of manna from heaven. They saw all that. And it never entered their mind when they got thirsty. Water's a real need. Water's a real need. But if you contemplate what God has done, the way you should respond is you should say, if you're in the wilderness on that occasion, Lord, thank you for liberating me from slavery. Thank you for providing manna from heaven. Thank you for keeping me alive when Pharaoh was trying to kill us. We need water. We're going to trust you to provide it. You've shown yourself to be trustworthy. Hardening your heart stops, or starts, sorry, hardening your heart starts with not remembering and not praising. They're not doing what they need to be doing. They need to be remembering, praising, and thanking. That's where the problem starts. How does it continue? Because they're not remembering, because they're not praising and thanking, they get distracted by the real need for water. And then at that point, they refuse to believe that God can provide for them. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah, testing Meribah, contending or quarreling in the wilderness. Verse 9, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. They're not thinking about what the Lord has done. And so they have a need and they quarrel. What needs are you facing? We all have basic needs for food, clothing, and shelter. But we have other needs that are, that are less essential to our ongoing sustenance. We have a desire for relationship. We have a desire for pleasure. We have a desire for significance in life. Are these needs that you have prompting you to remember the way that God has met your needs in the past, prompting you to thank and praise Him and trust Him to meet your needs in the future, or are they prompting you to harden your heart? And, and there, there's no middle ground. You're either doing one or the other. You're either relying on the Lord to meet your needs, or your heart is subtly, slowly being hardened against Him. When the Lord says in verse 10, For 40 years I load that generation. He's fast-forwarded. He's fast-forwarded to Numbers 13 and 14. And what happens there is the spies have been sent into the land and they've come back with the report that the people in the land are scary and they're not just going to hand it over. And And then again, instead of saying something like this, well, he brought us out of Egypt. He defeated Pharaoh. Surely he can defeat these people too. That's what Joshua and Caleb were saying. Instead of responding that way, the people say... 
We can't go up. And so the Lord makes this this statement. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. Their hearts wander. So there's a hardening that takes place and there's a wandering that takes place. The hardening starts, starts with not remembering, not thanking, not praising. The wandering goes into not obeying. He said, go up and take the land. We're not going to do it. They wander in their hearts. And then at the end of verse 10, they have not known my ways. What are God's ways? It seems from the context of the passage, the events under discussion, that God delights to do the impossible. God delights to do the unexpected. God delights to get his people into situations that they can't get themselves out of. And then he delights to meet their needs. They haven't known my way. They don't know me. And then verse 11, Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Uh, Literally, what the Lord says here is, if they ever enter my rest. And then it leaves unstated this curse that God calls down upon himself. As in, if they ever enter my rest, may I be slain with the sword or something like that. If they ever enter, what he's saying is they're not entering my rest. And there's a parallel here between the way that God created the world and then he rests on the seventh day and then he does the exodus and he's got rest for the people in the land. So it's like God's work is followed by rest, both at creation and redemption. And, and the people are not going to enjoy the rest of the land of promise. Now, let, let's think for a minute about where Psalm 95 is in the context of the book of Psalms. If you remember Psalm 89, we, we talked about the way that this, this commemorates uh, the fall of the Davidic king and, and the exile of the people from the land. And then in Psalm 90, this prayer of Moses, the man of God, we talked about the way that the, the intercession... In verse 13 of Psalm 90, return, have pity. These are the same words that Moses prayed at Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident. So the Lord is threatening to destroy the people and Moses intercedes. Psalm 91, this one individual is described and and addressed, the future king from David's line. And then in Psalm 92, you've got all these references to Psalms 1 and 2 as if if, uh, the, the author of the psalm is saying, The promises about the blessed man, the promises about the Davidic king in Psalms 1 and 2, those still stand. And then Psalm 93 celebrates God on his throne. Psalm 94 looks for the God of vengeance to rise up and do justice against his adversaries and thereby help his people. And then Psalm 95. And I think the the, the implication here is after the exile, we're going to have a future salvation that's like the exodus from Egypt. So you people that are going to experience that future salvation, don't respond the way the Exodus generation did. When when God brings you out into the wilderness after the Exodus salvation, don't harden your heart. Don't let your heart wander. And this is right where we live. Because the, 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 the salvation at the Exodus is fulfilled in Christ's death on the cross. And what what David, what the Holy Spirit, what the author of Hebrews, what they're saying to us is... Don't respond the way the wilderness generation did. And if you ask 
How? How do I avoid responding that way? The answer is in the first seven verses of the psalm. You need to cultivate a heart of praise. If you ask, how do I do that? The answer is at the end of verse 10. You need to know God's ways. You need to think on what God has done. You need to contemplate the impossible things that he's brought about. I don't know about you, but in my own personal testimony, I mean, I can remember Sunday after Sunday sitting in church as a, as a, as a child before the Lord turned my heart, resisting the gospel. I do not want to believe that. I do not want to go down the aisle. I do not want to, to buy into this stuff. I mean, I was like that guy committed to the rebellion. And the Lord, the Lord convinced me. He overcame all my objections. And then when I was later, in, as, a, as a high school and college student, anything but being a pastor, Lord. I'd be happy to do anything but that. And here we are, you know? <laughs> the Lord is pleased. The Lord is pleased to turn our hearts. Don't harden your heart. Don't go astray. Don't wander in your heart. So this instruction for the people of God who have experienced the new Exodus salvation continues into Psalm 96. And the way it continues is with a call to praise. I mean, I think there's a logical progression here. How do you avoid not hardening your heart, not going astray in your heart? Well, it's going to be one thing or the other. You're either going to be in the process of hardening your heart or you're going to be praising the Lord actively. So look at Psalm 96. This Psalm too falls into three parts. And, and the first part, verses 1 through 6, seem to be addressed to God's people. And then verses 7 through 10 seem to be addressed to the nations. And then verses 11 through 13 call all creation to join in the song. So look at 96.1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Now, before we go on, let me just, let me just stop and, and try to speak to this. Um, yesterday, I was, I was with some Christian leaders and a guy, we're talking about these kinds of things, and a guy said to me, what, what do I do if I've got somebody that just doesn't want to sing? They, they believe, they confess faith in the gospel, they just don't like singing. And, and now, you know, this might not be the only possible answer, but this is what I said. I think you need to tell that person to get over themselves. Because I think what, what I'm not saying this is the case in every circumstance, but often what seems to be going on is I care more about the way that I'm going to be perceived than singing to the Lord. Because if I sing to the Lord, there's sort of this unrestrained letting go, and I have to actually, sorry to invoke that song. There's this, sorry, there's this, um, there's this opening up of myself. And, and people are going to hear the sound of my voice. They're going to hear the quality of my voice. And maybe it's not so good. Maybe their opinion of me will go down. Maybe they'll think less of me. And so people don't sing. And what needs to happen is you need to care more about what God has done for you. And you need to care more about honoring God and obeying this biblical command. Sing to the Lord. than you care about your measly little reputation. And then I would invite you to look at people. And, and the people that you enjoy being around most are the people that really don't care whether, whether or not they look cool. 
right? They're, they're, they're the easiest people to be around, and, and they're just happy to be made fun of because they're happy to, to do things that somebody might look at and say, wow, you really look like a, like a fool when you did that. Yeah, wasn't it fun? It, you know, I don't matter. You can laugh at me. That's okay. This is great, isn't it? Get over yourself. Sing to the Lord. Now, there may be a deeper problem. What if I don't feel like singing to God? Here, here the answer goes deeper. Have you embraced the gospel? Have you experienced liberation? Have you contemplated the fact that you were alienated from God, you were a stranger to hope, you were lost, you were under God's wrath? And if you don't believe in Jesus, that's where you still are. And God has made it so that you can be brought home. And if you feel that, you'll want to sing. So look at the middle of verse 2. Tell of his salvation. I like that translation because the word he used here, the Hebrew word used here, is a word that gets translated into the Greek Old Testament, euangelizomai. Um, which is the word that, that gets translated into English, things like preach the gospel. So the, the kind of salvation that's in view here is the conquest of God, whereby he overcomes his enemies, frees his people, and, and sets them loose to enjoy his goodness. Tell of his salvation. Tell of what God has done for you, to free you, to praise him from day to day. In other words, all the time. Verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations. This is why Israel existed. This is why the church exists. We exist to declare the glory of God among the peoples that don't know him. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Those marvelous works are these great works of salvation. He continues, and again here in verse 4, there's an implicit argument against other gods. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. This is saying that the God of the Bible is the most fearsome of the divine beings in the heavenly realms. He is to be feared above all gods. 4 verse 5, all the gods of the peoples are worthless. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. These things that people worship. I mean, I know that a lot of people are cranked up right now. I'm kind of into the, the March Madness enthusiasm too. But Arkansas is probably going to lose this afternoon, right? Minnesota already lost. So if we put our hope in those things, we're going to be frustrated. Unless every now and then Clemson wins. And then we can all be happy for Paul and, and Chris. But these things are never going to really deeply at, at, at the level that we need them to answer what we're feeling, they're never really going to reach down that low. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. We can enjoy those things, but don't put your ultimate hope in them. And then look at what it says there in verse 5. But the Lord made the heavens. The Lord made the heavens. Um, I was looking at one of my son's textbooks um, this morning uh, to get this kind of information to share with you. And, and according to this, this book that my son Jake recently read, if, if you go out on a clear night and you count the number of stars that you can see with your naked eye, 
I've not done this, but according to this book, there are 1,029 stars that you could see. If you used a telescope like the one that Galileo used, there are 3,310 stars that you could see with that telescope. Um, people that look into these things estimate that there are 100 billion stars in the galaxy. And they suggest that there may be up to 100 billion galaxies in the universe. I mean, those numbers are so big that you can't even start to think about them. And, and so this guy, this author, he gave some illustrations that I think are helpful. If you drew a big circle and a small circle for the sun and the, the earth, and you put them nine inches apart, and each inch represented 10 million miles, that's, that's the distance between the earth and the sun. A big circle and a small circle, nine inches apart, each inch is 10 million miles. It, Paul Guesting pointed out this morning it takes eight, eight minutes for light to travel from the sun to the earth in, in this light year speed. I don't remember how, how, how many times around the earth light can go in a second. Four? Four times around, light can go around the earth four times in a second, and it takes eight minutes to get from the sun to the earth. The nearest star, the nearest star to our, where we are is this star Alpha Centauri. You would have to put your little circle 40 miles away to illustrate the distance from the, from the earth to that star. 40, and, and each inch is 9 million miles. You've got 24,000 million miles. That's a 24 with 12 zeros after it. And, and uh, to, just to get it again, the distance from the earth to the sun, if, um, if you could run a four-minute mile um, from the moment you were born and you were going to run to the sun, four-minute miles, it would take you 700 years at a, at a four-minute mile clip to get to the sun. And Paul pointed out this morning, it would get very hot. <laughs> if you were going to try to run to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, it would take you 182 million years at four-minute mile pace. This is a vast universe. And the Bible says, the Lord made the heavens. The gods of the peoples, these other things, they're worthless. And the God of the Bible made the heavens. So look at verse 6. Splendor and majesty are before him. I think what this is saying is that if you were to enter into the throne room of the, of the living God, you would experience splendor and majesty palpably, radiating out from him, dominating his presence. Verse 6, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. We've all experienced beauty. It's, it's overwhelming and God is the one who has invented these things. God is the one who has caused our senses to perceive them. God is the one who has established the world. He is to be worshipped. The praises of God's people, verses 1 through 6, now seem to summon forth the praises of the nations in verses 7 through 12. 7 through 10, sorry. Look at verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The very glory and strength that David had just described in, in, in the previous verses. Ascribe to the Lord, verse 8, 
the glory do his name. And then the nations are to come. They're to bring an offering and come into his courts. And he says in verse 9, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. God's holiness is uncontaminated. It is indescribably pure. It is, it is so overwhelming that all nations, all peoples of all time stand guilty before him because he is so absolutely righteous. And, and righteous in a way that when we behold it, all our objections stop, all our excuses end, and, and we recognize before this God, who always says and does only what is right, I can make no arguments. And there will be no arguments made. On the last day when the books are opened, and, and, and as Hebrews 4 described, the thoughts of all people are made plain, open and laid bare before him, there is nobody that's going to present a counter-argument. Nobody's going to cross-examine him. Nobody's going to put him on trial. He will be seen to exist in the splendor of holiness. And so the nations are summoned to worship. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. He's the only living and true God. He is in control of all things. Verse 10, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved because of his strength. Verse 7 and verse 6, the strength that, that emanates out from him. And then at the end of verse 10, he will judge the peoples with equity. Uh, this means he's going to be fair. Uh, I had, a, had lunch this week with a, a friend of mine. I don't know where he is exactly in terms of faith or unbelief. I don't know uh, where he, his wife is in terms of faith or unbelief. I kind of suspect they're not believers. Um, and we were talking, and I, I was trying to get, get them to articulate objections. And what they brought up, what he brought up was those who have never heard. Those who have never heard the gospel, what happens to them? What happens to people uh, to whom the message doesn't come? And, and I think what we need to do is frame that issue correctly. And, and to frame that issue correctly, what we start with is simply, uh, is God righteous? Okay, yes, we can grant that. Do people commit sins? Yes, they do. Does that make them guilty? Yes, it does. If they're guilty, does God owe them mercy? And, and the Bible indicates that God doesn't owe anybody mercy. God is free to give mercy to whom he pleases. He's free to show compassion to whom he pleases. So going back to that illustration that I started with, if, if somebody joins ISIS and, uh, you know, the spiritual equivalent, somebody joins Satan, and they decide that they're going to join Satan's rebellion against God, God is under no obligation to go and woo that person back. But what God mercifully does for those whom he saves is he goes to rebels and he mercifully, graciously woos them back. Everybody is obligated to praise and thank God. Everybody's obligated to obey God. Everybody's in rebellion against him. And then the la the, 
another thing that I think we, we want to affirm about that question is the God of the Bible is just and he's good and we can trust him. And he's the judge. The God of the Bible is good and he's just and we can trust him. We can trust him that when all the evidence is laid out on the table, everybody's going to say everything that he did was right. He will judge the peoples with equity. Now think about the flow of thought in this psalm. Verses 1 through 6, the people of God are called to praise. And that results in verses 7 through 10, all the families of the earth being summoned to join the praises. And when that happens, look at verse 11. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. It's like all of creation is liberated to praise God. The judgment that the Lord is going to bring, look at verse 13. All the trees of the forest shall sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That judgment is going to liberate the world, people and creation, from all oppressors, setting creation loose to enjoy the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We want to respond to Psalms 96 and 97 the right way, by joining in the praises of heaven and earth, by saying to ourselves, we must not harden our hearts, verse 8 of, of Psalm 95. We must not allow our hearts to go astray, verse 10 of Psalm 95. And then I would, I would just invite you to, to look at your life and ask yourself, honestly, am I praising the Lord in a way that would compel the nations. Um, this week, um, a guy named Jonah Goldberg, he writes for National Review. He, he sends out this weekly newsletter. And in this week's newsletter, I, I just want to read you some statements that he makes. In this, in this newsletter, he refers to himself as a secular Jew. And then he goes on to talk about his mother-in-law, who just recently died. And what's amazing about this is that there is nothing in this that would, that would even get close to something like a mother-in-law joke. You know, you, you've heard those jokes. Nothing like that. Listen to what he says about this woman. Perhaps more than anyone I've ever met, she was a person of love. I'm Jewish, Jonah Goldberg writes, and pretty secular at that. I'm also more than a bit cynical and snarky. And he goes on to say how writing about love doesn't come easily to him. But then he says that he's never seen love and faith and the good works that flow from those things more personified in a person than in his mother-in-law. He writes, her whole life was defined by love and the good deeds and hard work that flowed from that love. Love for God, love for the church, love for the community, love for music and the students she taught it to. Love, most obviously, for her family. She gave of herself constantly. 
Every time I visited, it seemed she was continually coming and going to visit the sick or the lonely, to console the grieving, to play the organ at a church service, to help with the church garden or take the grandkids somewhere. And then he writes of this most poignant memory that he has of how his mother-in-law came to visit on the occasion when his wife was going to give birth. And there were complications with the pregnancy. His wife ended up needing an emergency C-section. And he says, at one point, I ran back to the house to get something and found Donna on her knees praying for his wife and the baby. As far as I could tell, she'd been that way since I had left hours before. This is a secular Jew praising the Christian virtue of this woman. It's a, it's a glorious testimony to the work of God in this woman Donna's life. This is the way that we want to live. We want to live responding to the Lord for what he's done for us. This is what worship is. Worship is our response to God's revelation of himself. And we want to so respond to the Lord that the nations will praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would save Jonah Goldberg. And Lord, we pray that you would save any who are in this room this morning waiting for you to reveal yourself to them. Lord, we pray you'd do it. We pray that you would come to them and answer all their objections just as you've done for each of us. And Lord, we pray that you would so reveal yourself to us in your word and that you would so cause our hearts to attend to your goodness to us in Christ, that we would not forget, that we would be those who trust you and expect you to continue doing the impossible. Lord, keep us from doubt, keep us from forgetfulness, keep us from hard-hearted waywardness. Enable us, we pray, through this, to sing your praise that you might be glorified now and evermore in Christ's name. Amen.